Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutzil. Ever since the arrival of COVID-19, a lot of references have been made to the last big epidemic, the influenza crisis of 1918-1919, just over 100 years ago. It struck Canada hard, killing about 50,000 people, most of them fairly young adults. As if the First World War was not enough, one catastrophe followed the other as the year 1919 began. One simply shudders at how that generation of Canadians managed through such hardships. My two guests for this episode have thought hard about how Canada emerged from the First World War, and they hardly need introductions. Tim Cook is a historian of the Canadian War Museum, and has won or has been shortlisted for pretty well every non-fiction award in this country. The only person who's done more is his partner in this venture, and that's Jack Granenstein, who's a bit older. Jack Granenstein is supposed to be retired, but anyone who knows him knows that that's just not possible. Suffice it to say that after a long career teaching at York University, he was the head of the Canada War Museum from 1998 to 2001, and played a critically important role in setting up the new museum's home in 2005. They have joined their efforts and edited a book entitled Canada 1919, A Nation Shaped by War. It's a book that brings them and 17 other authors together, and it's published by the University of British Columbia Press. Tim and Jack, welcome again, both of you, to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you. Great to be on the podcast. Thanks, Pat. It's good to be with you again. Tim, you're the f- witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on February 22nd, 1919? Well, that was, of course, the, the death of our great prime minister, Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, Laurier, who was uh, prime minister from 1896 to 1911, who had spent his long political career uh, trying to find compromise and conciliation and trade-offs between English and French and the various regions in the country, he had lost the 1911 election to Sir Robert Borden, who would be our wartime prime minister. And his death in, in February of 1919, I think, is a symbol, uh, a symbol of, of both uh, his passing and, and that legacy, um, but the, the old world that was left behind. The Great War had uh, destroyed or remade. And I, I think he's a, he's a fitting symbol for... Uh, the book, uh, which is really about 1919 and the terrible effects of the Great War, 630,000 Canadians who enlisted, 66,000 killed, uh, 170,000 wounded, a, a country that was forever changed. And with his passing, I think, um, it is an, a jumping off point really for the for the new Canada. Jack Granstein, Robert Borden, the Prime Minister of Canada, is not in the film. Why is that? Well, he was abroad. He was in Europe making the peace after World War I. We have to remember that Canada was a colony at the beginning of the war and a colony still at the end, but very much changed. The war had given Canadians a sense of themselves, given them a feeling that they were a nation, that they could do great things, and that they were entitled to a bigger say in the world. The fact that you have Borden at the peace conference, not in a major role, but as part of the British Empire delegation, is uh, is extraordinary if you thought of it in 1914 terms. Um, the country had played such a major role in the war compared to some of the other nations uh, that were at the peace conference that Borden was able to uh, exert himself 
and to be heard. And we get into the League of Nations, the new League of Nations. We sign the peace treaty. We're on the verge of becoming uh, something quasi-independent, not quite independent, but not quite a colony anymore. And that's Borden's great achievements. Things were changing rapidly then already in early 1919, where Laurier passes away, Canada is asserting itself at Versailles. Uh, Tim, the as you said, the, the war cost Canadians a lot in terms of casualties. As soldiers were returning to uh, our shores, what's going on in the in the minds of the military brass? What had what had they learned from the war experience? What was their mindset as 1919 was beginning? Well, I think we need to remember Canada in 1914 had, had almost no professional army, um, a pathetic navy, and no air force. And so when Canada is at war, or automatically at war with the British Empire, we, we need to build our military force from scratch. And um, during the course of, of four bloody years and a terrible trial by fire at campaigns and battles like at the Second Battle of Ypres in April of 1915 or the Somme or Vimy in April 1917 and Passchendaele and probably most importantly the Hundred Days campaign, the Canadian Corps, our primary fighting force, emerges as, as really one of the finest fighting forces on the Western Front. And so when the war ends with Canada um, having played just a key role on the battlefield, and, and this is something that both Jack and I have written about, and in fact, we, we co-curated an exhibition at the War Museum on this topic, um, the 100 Days. Um, the military is hoping not to return to those pre-war years of, of the starving budgets and a pathetic force, and, and we had learned uh, the hard way, and they were hoping that there would be a large, large military force going forward, as Jack has said, to complement the diplomatic side that, that is emerging with Canada. And yet, of course, the Canada of 1919 is grieving and sorrow-filled and in incredible wartime debt, and, and there's no stomach uh, for a professional military. And two of our contributors, and of course, this is an edited book, so we want to mention those many authors, uh, Doug Delaney from RMC and Roger Sardi, two terrific scholars, uh, offered two articles on, on the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and, and the struggles they had, and ultimately, I think, the failure that, that Canada just had no stomach for a professional uh, military force. And we would feel that effects, and Jack has written about this so ably in his books, we will feel, the, feel that in 1939 when we again go to war completely unprepared. I guess we should mention that Canada is still technically uh, involved in, in a military venture in that we do have some troops on the way to Vladivostok. I mean, they're on the way to the Russian coast to uh, to battle the uh, the Bolsheviks in 1919. It's true. Uh, in 1919, we have uh, troops in the Murmansk area of northern Russia and troops in Vladivostok, uh, basically uh, trying to put down the Russian Revolution to support the whites and also. Uh, the Borden government thinks to establish a foothold for economic gains in, in that region of the world. Uh, a, a trade commissioner is sent along with the troops in the hopes of uh, creating some markets for Canadian goods. It turns out to be nothing. Uh, the military intervention turns out to be nothing. Uh, in the uh, Siberian one, 
there's effectively no combat at all uh, among the troops, most of whom are conscripts and very unhappy at being there. And in northern Russia, there is substantial fighting in which the Canadian Artillery Brigade and Canadian air units, not airmen, not in air units, airmen play a substantial role and do very well. But it, it's all for naught. The, the Reds win, the Whites lose, the world has changed forever. And the soldiers come back to Canada, Jack. The, the issue here is how, what is, what is Canada doing to receive our returning soldiers? What, what treatment uh, are, we, are we giving these soldiers coming back? Well, this is a war to end wars. It's a war uh, to create a country fit for heroes, or so the uh, gossip of the day says it's supposed to be. It doesn't turn out quite that way. The government has spent billions of dollars during the war, and its, its instinctive response is to try to cut back wherever it can. That's one reason, as Tim said, why there's no interest in having a real army at the end of the war. But it, there's also limitations on what is going to be given to soldiers. Yeah, you can get a patch of land, maybe. You might get a, you'll get a suit of clothes. You'll get a modest financial dollop, depending on how long you've been in the army and whether you've been overseas. You'll get medical care if you've been wounded. But you're not going to get the kinds of benefits that we give soldiers at the end of World War II, when there's really money for everything. And the assumption on the part of government in World War II, as opposed to World War I, is that you give veterans money, they will spend it, that will help create an industrial and uh, economic boom at the end of the war. Keynesian economics hasn't existed in 1919, unfortunately. And so the veterans really get rather little, and that's unfortunate. Well, it's, 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 it, they're very poorly received. I mean, the idea is that you, know, you come back home and life resumes and uh, you're expected to reintegrate society. And uh, notwithstanding the fact that you may have a serious case of PTSD and traumatized by your experience, there's absolutely no give on that, is there? There's no generosity towards a soldier at all. There's no generosity, but we let's be, be real about this. Yes. The major return home is the soldier reuniting with his family. Uh, they probably would have liked a big parade at the end. Sometimes they got that. But they did get back to their families, back to their civilian life. It was a rough transition because many had undiagnosed shell shock. Many had serious problems. But for most veterans, as after World War II, I think, there was a relatively easy reintegration into their home life. Not for everyone, but it was there. And there was medical care not usually for shell shock, unless they were really badly wounded, but there was medical care for those with physical wounds. Mental wounds were, were different. But uh, families welcomed their boys back. The problem was that there were 66,000 boys who didn't come back. Right. Tim Cook, uh, you've written about Arthur Curry. You both, you both have. Um, Arthur Curry was the commander of the Canadian Corps. He comes back to Canada in 1919. How is he greeted? Is he uh, is he the hero that we now consider him to be? No, he he's treated quite poorly, and I think he's another interesting symbol. Maybe with Borden and Laurier and others on, on thinking about the return of the soldiers, 
Curry is one of those figures. We all have them. Patrice, I know you do. Jack, you do. Uh, you know, these people that we, we, we are fascinated by in history, that we that have a hold on our imagination. And Curry is one of those for me. And I've written about him in almost all of my books. Um, a, a citizen soldier, um, not a professional soldier, but one who rises through the ranks to eventually be the Corps commander, to command 100,000 Canadians in battle and often tens of thousands of other British soldiers widely regarded as one of the finest generals of the war. I think Jack and I would both agree he's Canada's best fighting general. And yet there were no easy victories on the Western Front, even as he succeeded at Hill 70, at Passchendaele, at Amiens, at Arras, the capture of Cambrai. It came at a terrible cost in lives. And one of the things I struggled with in my other writings and in, and in this is how do you measure success on the Western Front? Um, you, you may capture Cambrai, but it costs you 12,000 Canadians killed and wounded. How do we measure success there? And there were many in, at home who felt that the losses were, were too high. Who did they blame? Well, they, they should have blamed the Germans, and some have blamed the British, and some blamed Curry. And so when he came back to Canada, he was treated very poorly. Uh, he had very little greeting uh, by the government. There was no uh, no real acknowledgement or awards for him. And um, Sir Sam Hughes, the discredited minister of militia, um, had stood up in March of 1919 and accused Curry of being a butcher, accused him of killing off his men wantonly. And so when Curry came back, uh, worn out for four years of service... He's doing this in Parliament. He's denouncing Curry in Parliament. He did, and it's a shocking charge. It shocks the nation. And Curry returns to this, uh, suffering what, what I think would now be called post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, to a nation that doesn't know if he is the returning hero or a butchering uh, madman. It's, it's rather incredible. <laughs> Considering the, the victory that Canada won, uh, the success, despite the bloodshed, Canada was on the winning side. And Curry was the the architect of that victory, and and yet and yet denounced in Parliament, and not shown any particular respect on his return to the country. I mean, again, symbolic of of what kind of year nineteen nineteen really is. Jack, I want to turn to you now. I mean, when we think about nineteen nineteen, of course, a lot of people will think of Winnipeg nineteen nineteen, the the general strike. Um, the Winnipeg though was the largest strike. There were strikes across the country. What does this tell you about Canada in 1919? It tells you that the country was in a difficult economic condition. Prices had risen dramatically during the war. Uh, wages hadn't kept up. Workers were trying to organize. There were uh, radicals doing some of the organization. There were traditional trade unions that were uh, pushing for more as well. And the reality was that you had terrible fear in Ottawa and in the business community across the country that democracy might be overturned, that the Reds might take over in Canada as they had done in, in what was now Soviet Russia. And the fear was, was rampant. So you have, in fact, the government exerting an iron hand to try to smash these strikes. The army is such as it is, is put on notice. Uh, in most of the large cities, uh, flying corps of soldiers are uh, prepared ready under well-trained NCOs to smash strikers. 
in Winnipeg, the Army and the, the Mounties put down the strike with some people killed and wounded and uh, a good deal of violence. People are deported, suspect radicals, including many British-born radicals. Uh, people are jailed. The, the workers are in revolt, and the government is smashing the revolt. It's also compounded by, by anti-immigrant feeling. There's no peace in the land. A lot of people believe that uh, recent immigrants had not volunteered for the, the war. It wasn't their war. And they made gains while good British Canadians were being shot overseas. That had to be ended. They had to be put in their place. And that was very much part of Winnipeg, certainly, and part of... Uh, the reaction against the uh, the labor revolt in Winnipeg, veterans were seen as one of the major uh, constituencies. Which way would they go? Would they support the the workers? Some did. Would they want to smash the strike? Probably most did. In particular, because they believed that these were immigrants who should be put in their place. Canada wasn't a very liberal place in 1919. People had been too bruised by the war, too bruised by the economic conditions. And then on top of that, you have the Spanish flu, Tim Cook. Can things get possibly worse? I can scarcely imagine what it was like in Canada in late 1918, early 1919, with the, the 66,000 Canadians killed in battle or by disease overseas, uh, 170,000 wounded, and then the the worldwide pandemic. And of of course, uh, this was something that those of us in, who know something about history knew about, but most Canadians had forgotten about until, as we know, uh, six, seven, eight months ago. Um, it certainly resonates today. The flu came in about, it seems to be three or four waves. There was a first wave in early 1918, which was not the killer wave, but then the virus mutated. And, and the scholar who has written about this for us, Mark Humphreys from Laurier, has done a tremendous job in researching this. And um, it, it, it ravaged the country, moving across the country as, as, uh, as we know today, as it, as it moves um, and, and being passed very easily from person to person. And ultimately, it, it killed, we think, 50,000 Canadians. And, and that's just astonishing to, to think about that on top of the 66,000 killed uh, during the war, uh, those deaths largely falling in a six-month period in late 1918 and early 1919. And, and I think there's two really interesting things that, that the scholarship tells us here. One is, is how Canadians responded to this crisis, very similar to what we've seen today. But in fact, in, in 1919, they created Department of Health. And so we see a state intervention a federal state intervention that we, we hadn't seen in many of the epidemics and pandemics before. And then secondly, I think what's really interesting for the historically minded is how quickly we forgot about the flu in 1919. We didn't build the same memorials. Another one of our scholars, Jonathan Vance, has, has written about the memory of the war. Um, and think of the thousands of memorials across the country in every community. Think of the National Monument and the Peace Tower and Vimy and Beaumont Hamel and there's almost nothing related to the Spanish flu. One, one point that I think deserves to be mentioned, the population of Canada in 1919 is just over 8 million. Yes. Uh, those casualties from the flu and from the war 
are much greater in proportionate terms than anything we, we can possibly imagine. The impact is huge on the country. 50,000 today, when our population is 36 million, would be traumatic. Yeah. Jack, let's, t let's turn to some politics. Uh, one of the winners out of 1919 is uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King. He's 45 years old, uh, and he wins the, the Liberal leadership after uh, Laurier dies. How did he do it? What, what made William Lyon Mackenzie King the, the great hope of the Liberal Party in 1919? Mackenzie King, uh, as someone said, didn't say a goddamn thing. And <laughs> probably that was true in much of his life. He stayed out of the war, right? Well, he was really too old to serve. Uh, he wasn't expected to, to be a soldier. Right. He worked for the Rockefellers during the war uh, as a conciliator, as a mediator in labor disputes. King was an expert on social welfare and social upheavals. He had spent his career working with labor. Uh, he was the deputy minister of labor in Ottawa. He uh, ran the Labour Gazette. He worked on international missions for the Laurier government. He was the ideal man for the labor unrest of 1919 in the eyes of the Liberals. This was a man who'd written a book Nobody read it, but it was called Industry and Humanity, and it seemed to propose all the necessary solutions to resolve the crisis of labor. He looks so much better than some of the other candidates for the liberal leadership, on top of which he was a supporter of Laurier through the conscription crisis. King, I think, believed that conscription was not a bad idea, but he never said so. He stayed loyal to the Laurier liberals. He ran for Laurier in 1917, lost, but he was nonetheless a loyalist who was acceptable in Quebec, where the memory of conscription was very real and very painful. Even so, it was a narrow-run victory yes. over uh, Fielding, who had been Laurier's finance minister, but who was older, who had been a conscriptionist. And King seemed to be the, the man of the future. He was young. For a leader to be only 45 when Laurier had been well in the 70s, Orden was in the 70s as well. This was the future. This was the man for the new post-war era. And in fact, King turned out to be very good at winning power, holding power, and uh, conciliating Quebec, bringing the Liberal Party back together, winning support in most parts of the country, and in fact, uh, forming a relatively successful, moderate, slow-moving government in the post-war period. Tim Cook, uh, Mackenzie King is going to have a problem, though, and that's the West, isn't it? It is, and I, I think, as Jack has said nicely there, the, the slow-moving government of Mackenzie King, and that's what we think of, of King, of course, doing everything by halves or quarters. Until I wrote my book on Mackenzie King, Warlords, I didn't like Mackenzie King much as a historical figure. I, I understood some of his political genius, but never an inspiring figure. But studying him over the, the last decade, I have come to understand his a key role uh, in, in, our, in our country's history, primarily in the Second World War, but that the 20s is a really interesting period where a lot of people would argue that King didn't do much. And, but what I think he did, as Jack has said there, is to slowly bring the country back, to slowly help us heal, to allow us to return to some semblance of normalcy, to 
ease some of the conflict with French Canada and, of course, the West. We often think of the war being a great division between English and French, but it was also a regional divide and, and one where farmers felt left out by the two main political parties, the, the Conservatives and, and the Liberals, as we call them now. And so we, we see the rise of a protest vote, um, the progressives, as they called themselves, a fairly incoherent party that didn't seem to want to act like a party, but had uh, won the 21 election and become le the opposition, quite astonishing, I think, to them and everyone else. And, and King found a way to work with them. And, and as a part of his political genius, I think, was to take some of their best ideas and, um, and to incorporate them slowly within his own agenda. Uh, and, and there, in that particular case, and, and the chapter in this book is written by Jack, so I feel a bit churlish here in, in talking about it. And Jack, you may want to jump in, but we really do see the political operator that is King and how effective he is in dealing with many parts of the country, but especially the West and especially the progressives. And especially Quebec. But let's not forget that the land is in such a fury that even in Ontario, in 1919. Is it not 1919 that the United Farmers of Ontario come to power? It is. It's 1919. The Farmers and Labour Coalition effectively take control in the province of Ontario. They're not a successful government. They only last one term. Uh, and they basically turn out to be more or less liberals, in large part thanks to Mackenzie King, I guess. <laughs> We can see here, and I think what Jack argues in, our, in the book is, you can see the rise of the third party, you can see the connection between progressives and CCF and ultimately NDP, we can see the rise of, uh, uh, of the anger in, in French Canada, in Quebec, um, and so when we talk about the Great War, as we've already mentioned, uh, the, the human cost, the stepping out onto the world stage, a country divided, labor unrest, economic uh, change, state intervention, and of course here, a tremendous political upheaval that emerges from this war effort. It just goes to show that the fury in the land was, was palpable. I mean, it was, it was felt by people uh, in the street and it was felt at the, uh, at, the, at the ballot box. Jack, I want to turn back. You mentioned at the very beginning that the economy is going through serious trouble uh, in 1919 as the government uh, tries to cut back and, and cuts back on expenses. The economy goes into a depression or a serious recession or a depression. I'm not really sure. Recession. A recession. Something's happened to Canada's finances, though, hasn't it? I mean, as you, again, as you say at the beginning, we got into the war as a colony in a financial colony of London. We come out of this in a, in a completely different uh, financial situation, don't we? We come out of it beginning to be a colony of the United States financially. Beginning. It's not mm -hmm. complete. Yeah. Uh, in 1914, we go into the war on the assumption that Britain is largely going to finance the war effort. It turns out that the British really can't do that very much. We had always traditionally borrowed money for our businesses, for our railways, for our industries in London. It turns out that London during the war has all the trouble it can handle supporting the British war effort. So where do we go for money? The assumption is that there isn't much money in Canada, so we have to go abroad. And the only place to look is Wall Street, uh, the United States, for money. Canadian businesses, Canadian governments had never really looked south before, but the war forces them to do so. 
And there's a lovely irony here because you have the Tories who in 1911 had run against the Americans on reciprocity. You've written the book on this. <laughs> and now, now they're suddenly having to go on bend and knee to New York and to Washington, begging to be able to borrow money. And the Americans, with a little eye on the future, I suppose, uh, grant that uh, those wishes, and Canada is able to borrow money. And the net result of all this is we come out of the war owing money into the United States, owing less to Britain. Much of our trade has swelled during the war with the United States, and that doesn't go down much. Much of our trade with Britain has declined during the war, and that doesn't recover much. So we begin the process of becoming a continental economy during the war. And it's not something we can ever fix ever after. It points to the fantastic transformation of our country uh, and, and Canadians dealing with all sorts of changes all through 1919. I want to ask you, imagine yourself on, uh, and I'm asking, I'll start with you, Tim. Um, imagine yourself on January 1st, 1920. Uh, what would have a Canadian have said to 1919, good riddance or what? Good riddance, I think. I think it was a, a very challenging year in many ways. But one of the things that Jack and I try to do in the book is, and that we tried to, to tease out from our many authors, was to, to show the change and transformation, but also the continuities, that um, even though we've just been talking about the Great War as this incredibly traumatic event in our history, there is much that continued along. Um, and I, I think Jack was wise to point us back to the return of the veterans. Uh, these men uh, and, and some women um, who return home after years, um, that reunion, we should not forget about that. And one of our authors, Serge Durflinger of the University of Ottawa, writes about the Van Dues, the 22nd Battalion, the French-Canadian Battalion returning home, greeted with wild celebrations. Um, this is very different than the historiography would suggest that conscription had poisoned um, the relations to the point where these men returned almost as social lepers. They weren't. They were greeted as heroes, as, as many of the veterans were. Uh, and yet there is a dark side, the legacy of the wounded veterans, the state intervention. Um, I think 1920, uh, you know, the way we think of, of decades and, and periodization, I think it would have been hopefully uh, a return to some sense of normalcy. But I think every Canadian who lived through the war would have realized that there was a before and an after. And I think that they were now embarking upon that after period, but it was a very uncertain one. And we have the hindsight of, of knowing what happened. Um, those Canadians did not. And I, I think we need to keep that in mind. Jack, what about you? If you were sitting on January 1st, 1920, what would have been your thought? I think good riddance to 1919, but also hope looking forward. There is a sense, too, that we're into a new era, that the country is different, hopefully better, that uh, we're still a, a British country, but very much one in the process of change to a, uh, a, a new kind of uh, quasi-independence. We have new young leaders uh, in addition to King, there's Arthur Meehan leading the Conservatives. There's Tom Carrer leading the Progressives. These are all relatively young men. Uh, women have advanced greatly during the war. They've done all sorts of jobs. They're, most of them have gone back home, but there's a sense 
that women now have the vote and that will have a major impact. And we're on the verge of something different. And remember, the 20s are still seen as the, the, the flapper era, the great new time in, in the world where things are exciting and different. Not quite in 1920, but that's going to be coming in the next year or two. Well, let's hope so. If, if we ever get out of this pandemic, maybe some of that optimism from 1920 uh, can be recaptured. I want to ask you guys, because you're both, you both have been so deeply associated with the War Museum in Ottawa, uh, a couple of questions about that. Now, now, Jack, this event, this book, is the product of a conference that you and Tim Cook organized at the War Museum, is it not? It is indeed. Tim and I did the War Museum exhibition on the 100 days of 1918 that ended the war. And we thought it was a logical uh, progression for us to try to organize a conference on the coming out of the war, exactly what we've been talking about with you today. And we wanted to do it in a slightly different way. We wanted to get uh, not just the old guys like me and David Berkeson and and others of, of my generation. We wanted to get young scholars. We wanted to get new PhDs. We wanted to get a couple of uh, people who weren't professional historians, but who were doing very good work. We wanted to do it in such a way that we weren't driven mad by having 19 papers by 19 different authors. So we had adopted a uh, pretty tough-minded approach to the to the conference and to the book. We wanted people to give us their papers before the conference in draft so that we could comment on them. We wanted them to present second draft papers at the conference. And we gave them a very tight deadline, which every single one met, I'm happy to say, to deliver their papers in final draft by the end of February. The conference was in late January. We got final papers in late February, and the book came out with the University of British Columbia Press in the Canadian War Museum's military history series uh, 15 months after the conference, which is slow by most people's standards, but in academic standards is dazzling. So it was it was a very successful operation. Lightning fast. <laughs> I have to say threats worked. Tim, let me turn to you. The... The, the War Museum is very academic uh, and uniquely, I would say, academic in Canada. I'm not saying academic in the sense that it's, it's, it's its mission, but it has an academic side that is well-developed, muscular, dare I say. Um, and yet we're all wondering about museums generally. Do you think that museums are should be called upon to be more scholarly? What do you think the role of museums should be in the future, particularly as they reopen, hopefully soon after the pandemic. Yeah, I'm currently the the acting director of research, so I'm I'm in charge of research and and, and have a number of historians working with me. Fabulous um, historians: uh, Andrew Birch, uh, Jeff Noakes, uh, Stacy Barker, Melanie Moran Pelche. These are all publishing historians, each with a books or many books. And of course, I'm a part of that group as well. And research is important under to underpin what museums are doing. And in fact, this goes back to when Jack um, was the, the director general uh, of the museum in the late 90s. He brought in a number of key historians, Dean Oliver and uh, Roger Sardi and Serge Durfling. I mean, this is the field, uh, or at least a large part of it. 
Um, and we believe it's important to continue to research and write and publish and have conferences like this one and to put on important exhibitions that will uh, educate Canadians about the impact of war on this country, on, on communities, on individuals over our long history. Um, and so that's an important part of our function and mandate. And I'm, I'm very proud to be there. I've been at the museum for 20 years now. I helped to create it uh, when it opened in 2005. And I think it's a very fine museum, but I'm deeply biased. Uh, <laughs> but to think about going forward, um, we were closed for several months. Uh, we reopened in late July and we were welcomed by Canadians uh, in the new environment with ticketed uh, groups and, and fewer numbers, and yet Canadians came out um, and uh, we opened fully in September. And I'm very excited. I think there's a key role for culture writ large, and I guess museums more narrowly in, in, in this crisis that we are in now and, and how we return to some sense of normalcy. Um, our, our culture is, is important in guiding us forward and giving us hope in, in education in um, perhaps in the museum sense, and as I have clung to myself in times, to remind us that Canadians have, have passed through very difficult trials in the past um, and have emerged. They have emerged, changed, and transformed sometimes, uh, but our, our history can, can be a guiding tool for us. It can be a bedrock. It can be a, a way to understand the past and, and where we are in the present and perhaps a way in the future. And I I hope that the Canadian War Museum can contribute to that general knowledge. Indeed. Now, I, I, I'd be really remiss if I didn't ask both of you this question because it's a rare opportunity to have two best-selling historians in this country. Uh, you've both won the Pierre Burton Award, which is the Governor General's History Award for popular media. And I've asked this question before of authors who've excelled uh, in writing what we know as quote-unquote pop history. You've both written books that are popular. I'll call them pop. They were that successful. But where do you draw the line between popular history, as it's known, and scholarly history? Tim, I'll start with you. Uh, I see myself as a public historian, and I have a PhD, and I have published two academic books and a hundred academic articles and chapters. And yet uh, years ago, and, and as a public historian at the Canadian War Museum, I realized how important our history is for all Canadians. Uh, I have a story I tell of, I used to play hockey. I'd be in a dressing room and someone would say, I saw you on TV last night. You were looking good. And it was some history television thing from eight years ago. Um, you never age. And, and I realized that the guys I played with who were business guys and, and uh, laboring uh, fellows who would never probably pick up a history book um, had an interest. You just had to find a way to, to share it with them. And I think both Jack and I, and, and Jack has influenced me with his tremendous ability to write clearly and with great passion, but also deeply, deeply researched into archives and historiographical debates that we can do both. We can be academic. We can do that research but you have to find a way to share the research. And I like to do it through my books and, and other writings. And I have the added, a great opportunity of, of, of having the exhibitions at the War Museum. But I know Canadians want their history. I think it's up to us, those who have spent years studying it, to find a way to give it to them. And as a final thought, um, 
if we don't tell our stories in Canada, no one else will. Don't expect the British and the French and the Americans to do it for us. It's up to us. And I think, um, I believe fervently that um, it is the duty of those who have studied and spent so long trying to understand the past in the context of the past to, to then turn around and share that uh, with our readers or our viewers or, or, or our visitors to museums. Jack, what's your view on this? You've written in popular media. You've written popular books. You've also undeniably uh, written deeply scholarly books. How do you draw the line between pop and, and scholarly work? I try to do exactly what Tim said, to write for a general reader in a scholarly way. What worries me is that so many other historians don't do that. Most historians now write not for the, the public, they write for the other historians, for the three other historians who work in their field. They write in a prose that's technical, that's uh, uh, hardly written to be read. It's, uh, it's a prose that is uh, so uh, layered, so, so pitched at, at a small minority of, of readers as to be killing history. And there's too much of that in Canadian history, in my view, and not enough of what Tim and I try to do, uh, not enough uh, good scholarly work that reaches the great Canadian public. Think of Pierre Burton, who I used to attack until I realized that Burton was keeping Canadian history alive at a time when the profession was swinging away from writing on the big stories that ordinary people would want to read. Burton did it better than any of us. And he did it in such a way that, in fact, he opened the doors for people like Tim and people like me to reach uh, a larger audience. Tim does much better at it than I do. But uh, it's, it's a very important for the, for the country, really, that our history be accessible to the people. I mean, I've been, I've had a chance to read Burton over uh, the last few months because it, uh, some of his books tied to my interests. And I have to say, I, I didn't find too many mistakes and er you know, errors. His judgment may have been... He was a good researcher. He really was. I mean, it's, it's very accurate stuff. And he was a good writer. And he was a master promoter. Yeah, well, yes. He was very skilled <laughs> at what he did. Indeed. Is it a question of spinning the right tale of, of, of making the extra effort to to describe an anecdote or to to draw a character in more detail. You're both extremely good at this. Is that what historians need to do a little bit more? Is Can the ac academic historians develop a tolerance for their colleagues who will do that? I wish. There's no hope of that latter thing happening. You're not very hopeful. <laughs> Small revolution. Academic historians have driven out people who try to reach the public. It is in some university departments, unfortunately, it is a virtual sin to have published a book with a non-scholarly press, with not a university press. Yeah. That's how bad it has become. And I think that's suicidal for the historical profession. It's suicidal for Canadian history. Now, I have to say, I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, you chose a calendar year to uh, to capture uh, Canadian interest. I'm biased because one of my one of the books I wrote with David McKenzie is called Canada 1911. We all know that uh, Margaret Macmillan started the whole thing with Paris 1919. You guys are coming in with Canada 1919. 
What motivated you to, to create a book around a calendar year? Is, is Did you like the experience? Do you see uh, a particular advantage or a particular disadvantage to this, uh, this method? I'll start with you, Tim. Well, uh, I'll say, Patrice, that both Jack and I very much admired your books on 1911 and, and 1917. Um, but for us, I think, is when we, we did our exhibition, Victory 1918, and uh, as part of that, this conference that produced this book, we thought about what we should write about. And, and one of the things we were thinking both about was the legacy of the war and, and how we would talk about that, because we had done the battlefield, I think, very well in the exhibition. But um, we eventually settled on 1919, and Jack, feel free to jump in here, because we thought a nice tight book around that calendar year, as you call it, was a real way to explore the, the changes and the turmoil, but also the continuity in places uh, of, of a Canada emerging from this war. And so part of it was an organizing principle, which Jack has also spoken to of senior scholars and maybe uh, mid-level scholars and, and new scholars and all kinds of different topics of indigenous veterans and children and war, a really wide scope. But I think, while no book is definitive, that this is a much more um, detailed exploration of the topic than if we had sort of looked at the legacy of the war over the last hundred years, which was a possibility, but that would have been a very different book. And others will write about 1919, but this is really an indispensable book, I think, to, to get a handle on that year and the many changes across the broad spectrum of, of Canadian society. I think the legacy of the war is a good topic for a hundred year study. That could be another conference, Tim. We could have another book out of this. <laughs> yes. I think calendar books are popular. People are using them um, everywhere in the Anglo-American, uh, I should say, the Anglo-American uh, stream, because they are approachable. Uh, people can easily imagine a year in the life, as opposed to uh, a history book that you know looks at a generation or two or three or a war for that matter. But a, a, a one year thing, um, I think is very approachable. And I think that uh, your book obviously has been very successful in covering the, the year of 1919. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on, on that important year in Canadian history. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Pat. My guests today were Jack Granstein and Tim Cook. Together they edited Canada 1919, A Nation Shaped by War, published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 21st by our highly skilled producer, Jessica Schmidt. 
Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.